Hello, and welcome to Generation AI, the podcast where we demystify artificial intelligence in the world of higher education. I'm your host, Artis Kudu, joined by my insightful co-host, Dr. JC Bonilla. JC, hello, welcome. How are you doing today? Hello, hello, everybody. Hello, Artis. Excited to be here again. Our conversations, our podcast, it's growing. My friend, today we have a really exciting episode. I think that today we will be talking about the core of the enrollment management operation. I'm so excited about this because I know there's a place where AI and the generation of AI that we are trying to demystify and project out will benefit the most when this is cracked. The process for matching talent, aka the student, to the product, aka the school, it's facilitated by AI. Could not be more excited about that. Artists, why are you excited about this topic, man? This is something that we've been working on, JC, together since we've known each other. We've come up with <laughs> predictive models. We've come up with different methods of predicting application yields, ad admission yields, admissibility. What are the six factors when we've talked over the past couple of years, removing criteria from the decisioning process, becoming test optional or test blind, as some schools would say. And it's still people have not cracked it. So I had some really interesting conversations this past week with some enrollment leaders from very selective institutions on how they're doing it. But I'm really excited because there's an opportunity for AI here to play a significant role in how we do talent matching and what we're calling admissions, in, in our case, in higher education. It's so relevant that you spend the entire week learning and sharing about the vision of an AI-ready campus. Artists, what are the takeaways? Educate me, what do you learn? And for everyone in the audience, how do I get my campus ready for what we're talking about here? The good news is that nobody has it figured out. What? You should come back with a, you should follow the seven steps to get you know <laughs> campus infrastructure ready. Well, yes, we're actually providing folks with clear direction on how to build use cases. However, talking to everybody, nobody has it figured out. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of misunderstanding of what AI is and just the definition or classification of AI, yet alone, what does it mean to be an AI-ready campus or what does it mean to incorporate AI throughout your campus? So that's the good news for all of those who are listening and you feel like you're, you're behind. You're not. Nobody has it figured out. However, there are very clear directions and there's very clear intent from CIOs and technology and admissions and enrollment leaders and presidents that we talk to and deans that AI is going to play a huge role in how they run their schools how they use it for teaching and learning and how do they use it for productivity as well. So data-informed decision-making, obviously we've been talking about this for a long time, but with generative AI now, that's accelerated and we can do a lot more use cases that we weren't able to do before. Fascinating. Look, no doubt that this is top of mind for everybody. And probably that's why this podcast is here. I'm still eager to hear the clear use cases of how it gets deployed. Last question. I think because we lived through this, does it feel like those conversations were on-prem or cloud-based infrastructure and what it meant? Remember, we switched over systems from paper applications to online applications. Does it feel that way? Or this is more revolutionary and like identity shifting? Because one was just basically 
it's going to make this faster and cheaper in a way. This is actually, if you think about it, it goes at the root of the educational identity. Like, how did it feel? The biggest problem that schools are having right now is around change management and technology adoption. You know, it's nothing new. And some of them are just looking at a generative AI or AI as just another tool in their toolbox, which clearly is not the right lens to look at it. It's very transformational. Hence, the wave is coming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're not, they're not ready for the wave that is coming. So my hope is that we are not staying still and we are actually in higher education are adopting AI at a faster pace than we did, you know, other technologies that now we're, we're a little bit behind. But yeah, it's a mindset change, JC. It's not necessarily technology deployment, so to speak, or picking tools. It is a mindset change. When you think about how do you upskill a IT organization where half of them are union-based, and now you're saying, I want you to get upskilled, and I want you to do these other jobs that are AI-based, but I'm not going to give you any money. So now you're fighting with a union. So the incentives in higher education are really interesting. And I don't have an answer. I don't know how some of our institutions are going to move. I would say that smaller institutions have a huge opportunity to be innovative and move ahead of the pack. And the larger ones are probably going to be left behind because they have to move these large ships. So this is where you and I now, I think, can start making these use cases and articulation of how it could land smaller, but more practical. So today's episode will focus on how a campus behavior technology can change now, today, if you wanted to, whether you're a small campus or a big campus, but we want to bring it on to the aspect of decisioning. Schools spend a gazillion number of hours preparing for the search of a candidate, rendering a decision, and then enrolling them, matriculating them. And we know that in that space from, I don't know, the discovery of my prospective student to I star them, it's a place where I think you and I can start thinking about this is where AI comes in and the use cases that are back. So to start our conversation, I want to start a bit high level because when I think at the very, very core of what it is, admissions, recruitment, enrollment management, however you call it at home, it's talent acquisition. And when you go through the lens of talent acquisition, which is I have an offering or I have a product and I need to find the best professionals, then AI, it's already there. Thousands of resumes for one job and having AI come with resumes and basically doing ranking orders or go here or ignore that one. Applications of candidate matching. All of a sudden that this candidate, it's a perfect fit for this role or wrong fit, actually go to this role. How organizations like Google move candidates left and right and is algorithmically recommended. Artists will be very successful in my organization, but not for that team. This is so important for admissions. My gosh. I can't remember last time I was in an interview. It was not fun. And I think the students that we've talked to when they go through interview process, it's an experience. And we know that AI has a voice there. And then one of the things that is so exciting that higher education needs to be learning on is that in talent recruitment, the whole conversation of bias reduction has started and understanding that sometimes these models can over-index on, you know, wild males or... You know, the guy with the accent is not being represented because the algo doesn't know how to identify that. And what is the relationship of an accent to success, if any. Right. All that kind of stuff is already there. So artists, 
What's your viewpoint on first AI in talent recruitment sector agnostic? So we're in a very interesting place right now because AI can certainly be very, very good at eliminating the hiring manager's biases. And it can be the same way, for example, when a highly selective school is reviewing or reader for that matter is reviewing an application and they're reading and making a decision. Reader A can make a different decision for the same applicant as reader B. Human error, right? Human error. So how do you eliminate that bias? During the summit in one of the panels, a highly selective school, they said, we don't want bias. We have our readers. And when I posed the question, well, how do you eliminate that bias that is intrinsic from the readers themselves? Is it before lunch? Is it after lunch they're reviewing it? They can make different decisions. If they're hungry, they're not. We know that as human beings, we're very, very prone to biases depending on context. And they said, we have instituted a double read. And it's like, okay, so now we have doubled the amount of work that we need to read one application. Compound bias. <laughs> so the answer, I don't think it's more people looking at these things. It's not committee reading, but it is actually a system or a rubric or a mechanized way of reviewing these applications and reviewing this based on criteria that we put together. However, there is the soft components of it, right? So the things that we were not able to do before, where it was all about data and I needed to represent JC in different data points, right? So that was the predictive components that we were dealing with all the time. Now those can be very biased because we just didn't have enough of those data points or those representations. We didn't have representations in the middle. So what happens now is that with generative AI, we can read and we can kind of consume unstructured data or stories for that matter that are very nuanced. And they can put you from a scale of one to 10, they can put you in a 6.5 with different dimensions and can put color around it. So it's the same exact thing that's happening in our jobs as well. We're looking at candidates here at Element, and obviously we use experience, but we use also what's called behavioral markers as well. We use a survey or a tool called Predictive Index that's essentially giving you behavioral components. It's saying, oh, this person is more likely to benefit from steady work versus this person likes different work. So now when you craft your job descriptions or you craft the program for that matter, how do you match that, the product, to the right person because ultimately it's not about admissibility it's about success and graduation and you know at the end of the day that's what we should be measuring against so admissibility should be around fit for that program matching right matching it, it's about behavioral traits as you just mentioned it's about credentials it's about potential correct and a really important thing that you just mentioned there whether it's bias or not it's scalability and one of the things I know is that, fine, to your point of the second reader, then throw a third reader, right? And then a fourth, a fifth, it's not a scalable value proposition. And what technology allows us to do, if anything, is that high-touch interventions, humans, are so important. So what I want to do is, I don't want to have two, three readers. What I want to have is these deep readers move to different operations. These recruiters move to different operations where the high-touch human intervention is needed. So there's no doubt that the role of AI in accelerating 
candidate match search, whether it's a student or professional, it's already here and the potential is big. Let's bring it down to the higher education level. And I think this is a really, really, really good conversation. We have two frameworks to start with. One is a book that you read on the promise of talent, Adam Grant. And I'd love for you to basically explain to everyone, what is this tension between GPT versus GPA? Yeah. So Adam Grant, for those of you who are not familiar with him, I would highly recommend you pick up some of his books. He's an organizational psychologist. So essentially he looks at how people and organizations work. So in this book, Hidden Potential, he's talking about the science of achieving greater things, meaning that how do we value people and how do we see what's that potential? And one of the use cases that he takes is around admissibility and admissions. The thesis is that Someone who has traveled, the trajectory is greater, meaning that their credentials were low, but they had to overcome obstacles, is better to be in a position to succeed than someone that has had a steady performance. So when you look at it, GPT stands for Great Point Trajectory, where if you started your semester with a C, and you ended your year with a B or an A is much better than if somebody had a B, a B plus, a B, and those are the grades that you ended with. If you take that and you think about it, you match that against GPA, which is essentially accumulation of all of your grades. But it's deterministic. It's a snapshot, right? That's your point. It's a snapshot. Exactly. Exactly. So as data scientists, like snapshots are never good. Trends are what we look for. I tell my team all the time. I'm like, you look at trend if something is going up or going down. And that's the AI angle, right? What you just discussed when GPT, right? Great point trajectories are patterns, right? Correct. Let's just be honest. We humans are not really good at pattern detection. Computers kick our butts when it comes to pattern detection inconsistency and speed. Around numbers, for sure, yes. Yeah, speed, right? So what we're saying is that at the very, very least, right, when it comes to a construct of quality, call it GPA, we need to be careful that deterministic numbers and snapshots, right, basically tell a story. But research starting to suggest that the mobility, the pattern is where the win is at. And throwing computational tools at that is the first thing. And we know AI, it's so good at basically just looking at numbers and saying, hey, here's the time series, like this is the trajectory upwards negative. So what you're looking for is how is the student going through change? Grit, hunger, all that kind of stuff. It's a really, really important thing. And oh my gosh, my story, Costa Rica, Arkansas, back to Costa Rica, New York, that just has so much grit. I'm telling my own story, right? But it's the idea that you can pick that through data and patterns, right? Movement and whatnot, adversity and things of that sort. Does that make sense? Hey, absolutely. And when we look at ourselves, the way we grow and the way we learn is through friction. So that is another component in the book is that it's all about friction. That's how we grow. If there is no obstacle, if there is no friction, then there is no learning and there is no advancement. So we look at that and say, it's much better to give someone something really, really hard that they're struggling than giving them easy problems that it's a breeze, right? So our first point that we can delve into a, a deeper conversation now is do not look at snapshots, right? Look at the trajectories. 
and trajectories could be a GPA, right? Or writing sample essay, nicely manufactured today versus an essay five years ago and having algorithms basically tell us the trajectory and the mobility of someone when it comes to grammatical career things. So very easy and interesting use cases. Artists, there's an article from the Chronicles that it starts talking about the allocation of AI onto the admissions offices. It's a survey that looked at about 314 universities, and they're saying AI is here, will be used throughout 2024, and it's helping in review of transcripts, review letters of recommendations, reviews of essays, conduct interviews, and communication with applicants. There's five use cases here, right? What I'd love to do is expand this with what College Board says are the entry points of admissibility. So College Board tells us it's about the courses taken, grades received, class rank, standardized test scores, personal statements, recommendations, extracurricular activities, and interviews. So now there's eight or nine here, five out of these already with use cases in AI. Let's come and start building models. This is what you and I do. And our first viewpoint is that we're going to recommend everyone to start looking at trajectory mobility. But can you remind everyone what an NLP is? Because all these use cases rely on NLP, natural language processing. So what is NLP and how does that help me scan, for instance, a personal statement or this thing that I just said, two statements, one from five years apart, how can a model tell me the evolution of it? Yeah, so with natural language processing and of course, this large language models right now that the generative AI components, like they're very, very good at making meaning and semantic meaning out of language and sentences and blocks of text. So if you are trying to use it as an evaluation tool, you can build a rubric that can be very, very easy. And you can say, here's the criteria and here's a corpus of text. Try to evaluate this text against this rubric or, or this particular framework that I'm giving you. So it's really good at that because it understands the meaning of those words or keywords or sentences or rubric together. And it also understands the meaning of the other corpus of text. And it's really good at putting those pieces together to say that these are close in kind of mathematical space, so to speak, right? Meaning wise, they're very close or very far apart. And it can be multiple dimensions when we think about it. It can be multiple dimensions on how language gets represented, right? Again, we're not going to go into a lot of those details in here because we want to keep it pretty high level. But that is the, the crux of it is that natural language processing and semantics meaning is encoded in not just words, sentences, phrases, paragraphs, and you can kind of go on and on, but you keep adding dimensionalities to those. And then you can see how close or how far these concepts and these things are from each other in many dimensions. So rather than getting a number, we now get a meaning component that we can put together and understand language based on whatever dimension or rubric that we put together. Now I'm going to go back. So we said courses taken. This is a really good use case because you're coming in to a university or a school. And if you're transfer students, or if you're going for a continuing education, you might have taken an equivalency course. And this was actually a use case. And one of the deans for continuing education, we discussed, she mentioned that that is a hard problem for them to do. And right now, what they do is they hire a professor or they hire a faculty member to look at the curriculum of the course that the student took. And they look at the equivalent curriculum of multiple courses at the institution. And they see, does this match enough? 
yes or no. And if it does, then they get the credit because they took that additional course before they came in. And the faculty member gets paid $100 or $75 for that, right? For that scanning of the curriculum. That's an easy one that generative AI can be very, very good at comparing two curriculums and saying course A and course B, are they equivalent or do they result in the same skills or competencies? Are they the same in that regard? I like that. So let me give you an example of how that also looks like. So core lookalikes, right, in this idea is that when I speak about exploratory data analysis, that's the name of the course, the same course can be called Probability 101. Two different titles, but when you start seeing how they're taught, what they cover is the same one. Fantastic use case. Let's switch to this one, interviews, right? And this is where another use case that is emerging in AI, the AI assistant, right? And it's kind of like a no-brainer. You can have 152 variations of a chat bot that interact with someone. But today, the interview process is still highly human-mediated. Just give you a use case so I can paint a picture and then artists take it from here. I submit a video and then it would analyze my blinking and the words I use and match it against a human behavior traits type of scope and say like, this dude is fantastic because he's always touching his nose, <laughs> blinking, and we think that it's our traits of extroverts. And my school likes extroverts. That's basically a behavioral proxy for success. So totally out there case, but technology speaking, that's an easy thing to do. How can we start using the AI assistant and interviews in this whole admissibility problem, artists? Well, the interviews are actually one of the things that are really high bandwidth evaluations, right? I mean, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time. Yes, exactly. And usually what a lot of schools do, and I had to go through this when I applied. So I had an in-person interview and then I remember this was Columbia. We met with an alumni and we had a two-hour lunch slash interview. I had no clue if I did well or not or what the recommendations were. And we think that we're very good at it. We're terrible at it. We're really bad at interviews. And I can see it myself. Like if I don't connect with you, especially over Zoom, we tend to lose interest. Can I insert a thought there? What you just touch on is that how interviews are subjective and they are feeling vibe-based, right? So there's a vibe. Yes, 100%. Yes, we connect or we don't connect. And everything else that you say, it could be brilliant, but I'm going to look at it with a bias because I just didn't connect with you right away. It's really hard to switch that. So AI in that case can be a unbiasing tool for us to bring into those interviews and we can level the playing field. So folks who don't come as polished, they're not as tall, you know, they don't come from the same background that you come from. So they don't get penalized for the things they can't change, right? I find myself being harder on people who sound like me because I'm somehow I'm applying my own story, my own page, my own book. Like, what do I know? I know my own life. And sometimes I give a pass to people who just look different and sound different to me. I know you have a thing for people with British accents. You think that they're brilliant. If you're Brit, just come and talk to me and I'm like, literally, I want to be your friend. So <laughs> I take British accents, Scottish accents, Irish accent, anything like that. So use cases, again, to start reviewing what we're talking about is that there's an entire opportunity on interviews, scaling the human component, normalizing or reducing the subjectivity on it, 
using NLP models, natural language processing models, to come and just ingest anything that looks like writing from recommendations, essays, and scan them, provide keys on how to read them, create lookalike algorithms. When it comes to anything that is numeric, grades, received, looking at trajectories, right? Those are places where today AI could come scale us and give us the time that we need to do the high-touch interventions, right? Because the, the, the part that I want everyone to understand is, an artist, tell me if you're in this boat. I think you are. By no means, we're saying decisioning, it's a computer from beginning to end. Decisioning requires the human touch, right? However, there's only 40 hours in a week, and it's taken us 40 hours to do this. So can we just get 10, 15, 20 hours back, letting computers and algos do what they do best, so we can we redeploy that amount of time in the high-touch, high-bandwidth interventions, if any. Fair? You're in that camp as well? That is absolutely fair. Yes, yes, I agree. So, artists, to wrap up today's conversation, let's just take a deep dive onto AI-driven automation into the workplace. So what are the things that someone needs to start thinking about if they're going to go into this? This idea of designing for use cases. It's crazy for you to design a use case that touches on all the variations and permutations that are there, right? The point is that you need to start looking for where do I address 50 60, 70% of the use cases, right? Because if you start thinking about this technology and this AI is going to help me for all of it, it's going to fail. We know that. I know that. It will never launch, right? So can you just give everyone your point of view as a product technologist and someone who's been building models and solutions? How do I go from, all right, I get it. I buy it. And now I want to start designing. Where do I start? How do I think about use cases knowing that if you go for all of them, it will be a recipe for failure. Yeah, I mean, we've all been in committees where we have to take in everybody's point of view and start thinking, well, have you thought about this? Well, have you thought about this? Or have you thought about this? And what we come out of there is actually something that is so watered down yeah. that it's, it's basically serving the lowest common denominator. So innovation is very, very hard when you have to take into consideration all of the different things. I'm not saying that you should live risk aside. However, you need to make decisions that are optimizing for velocity and, and learning rather than all of the edge cases that you need to put in there. And when you go into production, then you take different components or you think about how do you maximize the value while reducing the risk. You can't have 100% of each, right? You can't have zero risk and you can't have 100% value. So there's always going to be that component. And the principle is the 80-20 rule, right? How can you deliver 80% of the value with 20% of the work? Usually that's the way it works, right? It's 80% of the value can usually be delivered with 20% of effort or money or, or however we want to think about it, this 80-20 rule. And the other 20% is going to take you an infinite amount of resources in order to achieve that. So it's like that sweet spot. So that's the way we think about it. We move things very fast. It usually works out a lot better because you have compounding effects rather than trying to get the perfect thing from the beginning, which you're never going to get. But the compounding effects of making something 1% better every iteration, it's going to get you there a lot faster. Well said, my friend. Higher education professionals, educators at all, and friends and fans, 
Do not let perfect be the enemy of good. Exactly. Start. Start. AI is here to amplify us. We don't scale humanly really well. Think about all the biases in our decision making. And remember, when it comes to finding the right student for the right school, it requires talent. And talent is something that algorithmically seen and inspected. It's a real thing. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm really, really excited to see how our friends are going to take these and move to the next level. It was great, JC. Yes, absolutely enjoyed this. Thank you, everybody. And until next time. Generation AI is part of the Enrollify podcast network. If you like this podcast, chances are you're going to like other Enrollify shows too. Our podcast network is growing weekly, and we've got a wide range of marketing, enrollment, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks, all designed to empower you to be a better higher ed professional. Our shows help higher ed leaders and professionals like you find their next big idea. They feature a selection of the industry's best as your hosts, like Jamie Hunt, Seth O'Dell, Jenny Lee Fowler, Brian Gross, and many of your favorite leaders in higher ed. Enrollify is made possible by Element 451, the next generation AI student engagement platform that's helping institutions all over the country create meaningful, personalized, and engaging connections with their prospects and students. Learn more at element451.com.